Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. David, have you read much about the late Richard Shaver? You know, you're the person that introduced me to him. I, I can't say this has been an area of paranormal research that's ever fascinated me because honestly, Gene, it smacks too much of science fiction. It's I've read you know things like H.G. Wells' The Time Machine that it dealt with this topic. Jules Verne wrote about this extensively. There was that great movie with the duck. Uh, <laughs> I always think of it as the movie with the duck. And I think it might have been Pat Boone, though I might be wrong about that. There was that really cool, weird science fiction movie where they go down to the center of the earth. Journey to but the I, center of the earth. Journey to the center of the earth. It's, there's that duck. That, did I mention there was a duck in it? That's right. Did you mention also Pat Boone was a bad actor? Uh, he's even a worse heavy metal musician, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but I've never, I, I can't say that I've ever really been motivated to research this particular aspect of paranormal research. Well, I knew Richard Shaver. I guess I'm one of the few people still alive who knew Richard Shaver, who met Richard Shaver, who meant the person I would call his mentor, Ray Palmer. Ray Palmer was, of course, the editor of Amazing Stories. He was the co-founder with Kurt Fuller of Fake Magazine. That's the one that Phyllis Galdi is currently publishing. We have on the show. That's right. And I knew Kurt and Mary Fuller. I knew Ray Palmer. I met Ray Palmer. And you knew everybody. All right, you show off you. That's right. I'm a show-off. That's right. I knew these people, but where has it gotten me? Uh, onto the Paracast with me, sorry to say. Well, I guess that might be a plus if we look at it in certain ways. But anyway, yeah. I felt that Ray Palmer and what he said about Richard Shaver was very sincere. I felt that Richard Shaver was very sincere, which doesn't imply a belief system here, in claiming that he met entities or beings from beneath the earth, that he had so-called rock books. And we've talked about Shaver very briefly in the early episodes of the show. And I felt it might be a good time. I don't know if David agrees with me or not, but we wrestled with this. And we looked for somebody who would be a good spokesperson who would talk about so-called hollow earth mysteries. And the person we're talking about is Michael Mott, who is an investigator of subterranean myths and mysteries. And he's coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 
U-F-O-M-A-G-A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. So, Michael Mott, I understand that the original stories of Richard Shaver in contacting people that allegedly came from the inner Earth influenced the original Star Trek pilot. Could you tell us about that? Well, you know, I'm, I've never seen it written anywhere else, but but I would it's, it's evident to someone who's familiar with Shaver's work and, and with science fiction in general. And of course, Richard Shaver came under a lot of revulsion from the science from the science fiction community when when he was when he was writing, because he claimed that a lot of his material was, was based on fact and wasn't really fiction or was, or was thinly veiled fact, you know, disguised as, as fiction. But if you, if you look at the original pilot for for Star Trek called The Cage, The Cage was later turned into a two-part episode called The Menagerie. And in The Cage, they Captain Pike and the original Enterprise follow a distress signal to a remote planet and in order to rescue someone who supposedly is there. And, and what they find is that there are, there's a group of subterranean humanoids living on the planet. And in the original Cage, there are materials that are not in the episode, the two episodes called the Menagerie, things that were obviously cut out if you watch the entire thing. And one of the things that comes out is that that the the beings that that exist in the subterranean world that they find are enhanced by technology. They have they already have very powerful minds that they can use to create illusions and so forth. But they also there's mention made of technology which exists which even they do not understand that was created by their ancestors. And of course this all is identical to what Shaver talked about right here on Earth. He said you know that they were that lived inside the earth. There were evil ones called Deros, and there were good ones called Tiros, and that the Tiros or Teros, as people call them, that they all have these, these advanced technologies, which even they have forgotten how to use, or, or, how, or how to create, I should say. They know how to use them, but they, they don't know how to create them. They just, know how, they just know how to make it work. And it can be used to create very real illusions, um, influence dreams, so forth and so on. And that's what you find in, the, in this episode. And, and these beings are called Talosians. And, of course, if Talosian, you know, is not that far removed from Tarosian or, or Taro, or Taros, as, as Shaver called them. And then, of course, there was another writer who kind of based a lot of his work on, on Shaver's material. And his name was Maurice Doriel. Actually, that wasn't his real name. His name was Claude Doggins. But he wrote under the name of Maurice Doriel. And he wrote a bunch of stuff about Lemurians living under Mount Shasta and all this other kind of stuff. And they would be living in a city called Telos, and they're called Telosians. Well, again, this is very similar to what's in the Star Trek episode, which is Talos, as were subterranean humanoids, like the Dero and the Tiro. They're interested in, in manipulation of human activity, especially procreative activity between men and women, creating fantasies and illusions and, and interfering, basically, in, in, in reproductive decisions, let's say. Um, so it's, it's very obvious that the theories of Richard Shaver were a major influence 
on whoever wrote this this piece, hmm. whether they want to, whether they want to admit it or not. I mean, even even the names of the characters, the technology, the activities, um, the environment, everything is is virtually identical. Well, then to raise the next question, but I have to first tell our listeners who are listening to Michael Mott on the Paracast. Michael is an investigator into subterranean mysteries about the caverns, about cauldrons, concealed creatures, and about Richard Shaver. Now, we mentioned Richard Shaver very briefly on our first episode and second episode of the PowerCast. And I knew Richard Shaver, by the way, one of the few people, I guess, still around who knew Richard Shaver way back when. So, Michael, before we proceed with other aspects of the Hollow Earth Mysteries, more specifically, we see how Richard Shaver influenced science fiction and quite possibly influenced the original Star Trek pilot. What else can we say about Richard Shaver? Well, I think that Richard Shaver was was a man who who desperately wanted to be um, he, he he wanted to be understood, but on his own terms, and he wanted to be taken seriously. And of course, he was not. He did have some problems with mental illness and, and some other some other things, and, and that has been verified. However, there were a lot of things surrounding Shaver that that simply cannot be explained, and, and some of some of the occurrences that happened to people close to him, things of that nature, and, and in his presence that spoke for something else in terms of, in terms of uh, something that defied rational explanation going on. I believe that something did happen to him, and he experienced something which, which traumatically affected him. And I think what happened was his mind more or less resorted to confabulation to some extent. And, and in the trappings of his time, pulp science fiction was the big thing. And I think that he kind of took whatever had happened to him, and I think it really did happen. But he wrapped it in sort of a pulp sci-fi regalia so that he could comprehend it so that he could share it with other people. When you say things happen to him and people around him, can you be more specific? Oh, sure. He he had a lot of experiences, supposedly, with, with being from, from inside the Earth and, and supposedly had gone to these places. And some people have pointed out that possibly he was actually uh, incommunicado in a, uh, in a mental institution at the time when some of this stuff happened. But Ray Palmer, who was the editor of... of uh, amazing stories at the time and, and who sort of brought Shaver to the forefront to everybody's attention by publishing some of his fiction and, and actually embellishing it to some extent at, at times. But Ray basically believed that, that Shaver's experiences were real, but they were astral in nature. In other words, there was something not physical going on, but he thought it was physical. It was an out-of-body experience then? Sure. But okay. Shaver thought it was completely physical. And, and he would even go so far probably as to say something to the effect that, that it would be the effect of their rays on him if he if he thought, in other words, he believed that they could create completely real illusions, and uh, so maybe one is interchangeable with the other. Um, but things happened. For instance, Palmer visited Shaver at his home in Ar- in Arkansas, and while he was there, he heard a very elaborate conversation going on between disembodied voices in the next room, and. It really had a profound effect on him, I think. I think from that point, he, he kind of changed his whole direction in publishing, really, because he experienced firsthand these eerie voices that Shaver said he heard, and he heard them discussing an accident that happened or the torture of somebody or something in, in a cavern. And uh, with, a great, um, with a great detail, very gory detail, several voices, and, and he actually said something to these, to these voices, and then they proceeded to make wisecracks about him. Yeah, I want to tell you something here. I heard personally Ray Palmer tell this story, okay? I met wow. Ray Palmer. The late Ray Palmer died in the late 1970s. I met him at his home 
in Wisconsin, Amherst, Wisconsin. And he told the story about hearing the voices. And the thing that he mentioned, which is very important, Mike, and I think we should emphasize this to our listeners who are skeptical, they could say, well, maybe it was Shaver talking. No, because there were a lot of voices overlapping. Right. And even the best ventriloquists couldn't do that. And then Palmer tells another story. I don't know if you know about this. They were going to publish an issue of Amazing Stories containing mathematical computations to supposedly demonstrate that what Shaver said was true. And Palmer, in trying to bring the galleys of this documentation, he was living in Chicago at the time, trying to bring the galleys to the printer. He was nearly run off the road by somebody. One of the people who did the typesetting, this is the old days when they used hot lead to set type, you know, it's not like we have now with desktop publishing. This is the 1940s, where there were a huge number of mistakes. And the head typographer told Palmer, I didn't set that. I didn't do it. And Palmer's position at that point in time when I interviewed him, which was a couple of decades later, was that someone elsewhere took control of the typographer's mind in order for this to happen. So, David, this is pretty crazy, isn't it? Well, yeah, actually, this is this is a little out there. I'm sitting here thinking, all right, at this point, scientifically, we don't understand everything about the internal structure of the planet Earth, but we do have a fairly good idea of what is in the upper strata of the planet. If you're in the oil business, you you have to know this in order to find oil fields. Uh, If you're studying geology, obviously, then you have some understanding of how the internal structure of the planet is is organized. (laughs) Of course, what comes to my mind is what what we're talking about so far is completely anecdotal, and it really centers on, on two individuals, one whom we know had some mental issues. That said, do we have any kind of hard science to indicate that this is a possibility. Uh, Actually, we do. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. I'll tell you what, before he delivers that hard science, I got to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Michael Mott. He's an investigator into subterranean mysteries, and we're talking initially about the Schaefer mystery, and this raises a whole, oh, a whole bunch of possibilities, or a can of worms, depending on your point of view. A reminder also, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to contact us, send your messages to news at com, news at com, and visit com for our wild and woolly message forums. Michael, you had some evidence. Let's hear it. Sure, and to be fair to Richard Shaver, who, of course, is deceased, you know, the, the man did have some, some, some mental problems and instabilities, but I think he was sincere in his beliefs, for whatever that's worth. He did also find the startling amount of physical evidence, or so he claimed, and he presented that to the world, in, and that's going to be involved in, a, in another book project I have upcoming, which is not published yet, but it will be. But what I'm getting at here is that, that Richard Shaver is just one very small aspect of a greater mystery, which seems to indicate, at least in my mind, that, that there's a lot more to the biosphere of our planet than we assume, and even than we're taught by conventional science. And there's a lot of evidence to bear this out. For instance, you mm-hmm. know, even now, 
they're saying more or less that 90% of bacteria on Earth may exist in, in a subterranean form. And they're just now finding you know, bacterial life at a very great depth. And one of the things that, that comes along with this is that, of course, bacteria is the basis of the food chain. It's the basis of, of, of any ecosystem. Right. And, and so, you know, there have been a lot of mysteries found in caves, a lot of strange artifacts, objects. Um, there was the cave in Mexico a few years ago where some people found some bipedal footprints, took pictures of them, and just things of that nature. But on top of that, even recently, we have, we've had a big brouhaha, you know, in Flores Island in Indonesia, and where supposedly they found it, well, they, they found a cave. It's not supposedly. They found a cave, and the cave had been inhabited continually for 80,000 years. And they have discovered, supposedly, that the people that, that and I'm, I'll call them people, but the people that inhabited this cave, they're calling the Flores Hobbit or Homo floresiensis. And it, it was a small humanoid, uh, approximately three feet tall, in its adult form. And they were continually on that site for 80,000 years. And they say, well, you know, the skeleton we found was 18,000 years old. But if you talk to the villagers in the region, they'll tell you themselves that 300 years ago, they finished killing all the, the things that lived in the cave because they would come down and they would steal their children and they would steal their crops and they would do things at night when everybody was asleep and they got fed up. They, supposedly they stole a baby, they went back to the cave, the villagers followed them, built a fire in the cave and killed all them, all them basically by smoke and I guess by, you know, just, just the heat and the smoke of, of a huge blaze. And what you find here is something which is which is very disturbing, but a lot of modern scientific people will not want to look at in a serious light because they tend to pigeonhole things and they, they won't take into consideration folklore, folk traditions, local traditions, you know, what people have to say, anecdotal evidence, if you want to call it that, that that's been building up for centuries. And if they were bipedal humanoids living in this cave that were predatory in nature, how many times in human folklore does that replicate? It's, it's, it's universal. And you have stories of little people who steal children everywhere. Everywhere from Ireland to England to Scotland to Northern Europe to China to wherever. You have stories about pygmy-type people or small people who are furtive, who live underground, who come out and they prey upon the surface world in one way or another, usually for some sort of genetic purpose, for genetic exchange, or for food, to steal crops, to steal infants, to steal livestock. And uh, this is exactly what... The, the natives of Flores Island claim that the beings that lived in that cave, whose bones had been found, were doing. So that in and of itself is evidence. And, you know, you have to look at it as supposedly modern man, in the form we're in now, we've supposedly been around for about 50,000, 60,000 years, maybe. Maybe some will say 100,000 years. Well, if these beings were in that cave, as far as they can determine, for 80,000 years, even if they're on a remote island, that's still plenty of time for a, a predatory species an aggressive species to branch out, you know, to, to leave their place of origin, if that was their place of origin, and to go other places and to continue to evolve as they move, to continue to change and develop. You know, and that may have a lot to do with a lot of the legends of, of furtive little people around the world. And, you know, it's not so much fairy tales as it is just another type of hominid that has continued to evolve and has learned how to avoid the big hominids, which are us, and, and to live off of us 
to a greater or lesser extent, depending on where they are. You know, what you've just described, Michael, echoes the depiction of the Morlocks in H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Uh, was H.G. Wells in any way influenced by these these folklores of people living underground? Let me just throw something in before Michael answers. Shaver said he was. Shaver said he was influenced by... Yes, he did. Yes, yes, he did. Wells, you know, a lot of people have, have wondered about some of the things that Wells the Wells revealed in a lot of this fiction, and there have been, of course, you know, rumors about Wells being a member of various secret societies and, and seeking to, you know, reveal secrets through fiction to the population in general, you know, do it in such a way that, that it will make it easier to understand later. He described air warfare long before it ever occurred. He, he describes what sounds like an atomic war and, and, and so on, but he also described the time at which people would discover that, you know, in the, in the time machine, that, that there were subterranean beings who, in the case of the time machine, manipulated and exploited the surface world. And again, you know, you look at a lot of the mysteries that surround us and the various things that people claim that they see, not all of these people are delusional. Now, you know, I think that there are some who are delusional. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I think there are plenty that are not, that are sincere. And I've spoken to some of these people, of course, and they find themselves in a situation where they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. You know, if they don't talk about it and tell someone about it, you know, it just tears them up. If they do, then they risk ridicule, you know, humiliation, in their job, so forth and so on. But what you basically find in these in these cases, and this is something that pertains to a wide range of phenomena, from UFO phenomena, abduction scenarios, to Bigfoot. I mean, it just it, it just runs the gamut. And what you find is there really is an underlying pattern to these things. And one of the many aspects of this, one of the many aspects of the pattern, is that almost every single anomalous being that people see, no matter how strange it initially seems, conforms to an earthly vertebrate template. It's got one head, one central trunk, two legs, two arms, two eyes, usually binocular vision, which is a predatory sort of a vision or a primate vision. They tend to have uh, either a rep- very reptilian or very mammalian characteristics or both. And, you know, initially when you see a strange animal or a strange creature, you know, yes, it looks very alien and strange. But when you look at the diversity of our biosphere, where you have everything from hermit crabs to blue whales to human beings, you know, who would think that all these beings share parts of the same genome? But they do. All life on Earth has a common genetic heritage. And you get tales of hybridization and so forth with these other hominid types, whether they're UFO beings or whether they're hairy humanoids, there are tales of hybridization with these with these beings. And the only way animals can, can create hybrids, in, even, even in a test tube, okay, they have to have a common genetic heritage. In other words, what are the, what are the odds of all these various humanoid forms showing up more or less simultaneously in terms of geologic time on one planet around one sun on an outer arm of, of, of a spiral galaxy. I mean, they all end up here at the same time from various other worlds. To me, that smacks, at, at the very least, of, of disinformation. You know, while you're looking up there, oh, we're from out there, we're from there, we're from here, we're from there. You know, who's looking around at what's going on in your own environment? Who's looking beneath your very feet? You know, if you're constantly looking at the sky thinking everything comes from out there, but that, that just logically does not make sense. And the fact that, that various, all these various forms, these mysterious beings of various types, conform to an earthly vertebrate template, that should tell us something. The fact that supposedly hybridization can occur, that should tell us something. You know, um, if, if a being comes from another star system, the odds are very good, you would think, that their entire genetic makeup would be completely incompatible with ours.
Fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, well, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. A reminder, if you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, or visit our website, theparacast.com, and participate in our wild and woolly message forums. We're talking to Michael Mott. He studies inner earth mysteries, and we've been covering the Shaver mystery and the overall legends of creatures beneath the surface of the earth, other beings who may be here right Right now, beneath our feet, David. So, Michael, the points you were making, I understand what you're trying to say, but but there are some issues with that. It, I I don't think it's surprising that if you look at a planet like Earth, that a certain type of advanced life form or set of life forms would evolve in a similar way. That you know, th- there are <laughs> the theory of evolution is not just a theory. There are some things that we know about evolution, and yes, if we look at the vertebrates on the planet Earth, they, they do appear to have common ancestry, which would then make sense that you know a, a dolphin, a whale, and a human have two eyes, have skeletal aspects that are common, uh, have large brains, um, just like elephants. You know, that's not surprising. The fact that when we, you know, you brought extraterrestrials up or what are reported as the occupants of UFOs. Uh, when we talk about this, and this is a point we've brought up on the show before, it's, it's fair to say that at this point, when, when we consider the origins of these beings, really we're talking about one of three potential origins, interplanetary, interdimensional, or from our future. From the future theory sort of supports the notion that what we consider to be like the greys are really an evolved version of what we are now, that they are actually our future. But the point is that, you know, you have to be careful with that argument because in essence it is probably true that in other star systems with other planets that have a different makeup than the earth that there are forms of life that are absolutely completely different from anything exactly. that we can imagine oh, absolutely exactly. i mean it, clearly but, um, but that's that's why i say the odds of them being so similar to us and really they are the forms described in spite of it being an initial outlandish look to them they conform to an earthly vertebrate template. They're not as outlandish as people think they are, you know, upon initially seeing them. And there's nothing that people say that they see in regard to any of these mysterious beings that does not fit comfortably within either a reptilian or a mammalian template. And 
that's my argument exactly. They, to, to say that they come from somewhere else, that's just an assumption, and actually it's, a, it's, a, it's jumping to an extreme conclusion. And as far as the time travel thing goes, you know, another thing that you hear stated a lot is that even though they supposedly come from different star systems than our own, that somehow they are us, they're our descendants, you know, with their ancestral form, but I think that's a bunch of baloney. Because basically, you know, if they're simultaneously traveling here in space while traveling back in time, which is what they say they're doing, they're either they're somewhere else far away, but they're also traveling in time to get here, back in time. That doesn't make any sense because it's, it's basically bad science fiction. First, Einstein has indicated that as one approaches the speed of light, time dilation occurs. So much more time passes in the universe, which is its standard time speed, than it does in the, in the very fast spacecraft. So in other words, hundreds of years pass on Earth or on any other planet, you know, within its own continuum of time, while it seems just a few hours pass in the super swift spacecraft that's, that's traveling. So that doesn't work in reverse. You can't make that work in reverse, even using Einsteinian physics. In other words, if they are from the future, then how is it that they have come from some distant star using spaceships? I'm not saying they came from... No, 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 no. I'm saying saying it's completely contradictory, though. That's another one of those things where where people reach for an extreme explanation for something when really, as Occam's Razor tells us, often the simplest explanation, even if it seems outlandish at first, the simplest explanation, which would be that most of these things actually originate right here on Earth, including UFOs, okay? Most of these things originate here. They've always been here. There's plenty of evidence these things have always been in every every folk system, every tradition has, has an equivalent and you know instead of looking up and out and listening to a bunch of disinformation wherever it may originally originate it's i think maybe it's time for us to start looking a little closer to home for an answer to all these types well, of mysteries sure but you have to expand your definition of here if we're talking about inter to be honest with you in the the thought that i've given this topic in my discussions with friends like gene and other friends who have spent a lot of time thinking about this topic i've come to the conclusion that it's more likely that these beings are interdimensional in nature and that statement essentially means that the notion of what you and I call here is is really not accurate. If you're talking about a multiverse where there are many different universes existing simultaneously, right. then, then this thing that's called here, well, it's not really here. But I also have to point out that to limit ourselves by framing everything in a context of what we understand about the physical universe, that it's in and of itself is a dangerous stance. You know, Einstein was a brilliant man, but he was not God, and he'd be the oh, first absolutely. to tell you that. He'd be the first and, and to say actually, look. Well, actually, you know, what you're saying is something that I do touch upon, which is that, that there are other dimensional aspects to these beings, but that still does not mean that they are not from here. And by that I mean they regularly seem to use our world, our surface world reality, as a resource. They come here, they get what they need, and they leave. They seemingly vanish. Well, there seems to be a lot of evidence that they vanish underground. Now, whether this has anything to do with other dimensional gateways or, or a way to, to change density or, or vibratory rate or whatever you want to call it, I mean, that may very well be part of it because, you know, the further down you go, the, the higher the pressure, the, the greater the density. So that may have something to do with the whole thing. But time and time again, I mean, over and over again, and even according to the records of various navies and, and, and so forth around the world, UFOs have been seen entering and leaving lakes, rivers, oceans. There have probably been more sightings of UFOs over oceans you know, than anywhere else. Somehow they seem, they've seem been seen going into the earth, into mountainsides and disappearing, coming out of volcanoes, like in Mexico a few years ago, going into volcanoes. You know, they're coming and going here. And whether they're going to another dimension or not, 
not that dimension still is localized in terms of it may be a different vibratory part of the, of the electromagnetic spectrum, whatever you want to call it, but the fact is that it's here. It's here. It's not out there. It's not on the other side of the galaxy. And, you know, you'll find over and over again, you know, tales of fairyland where time dilation occurs, where people are taken and they go to this other place. This, you know, this goes all, this is all over the world. They're gone for a little while. They come back and everybody's dead. Okay. Well, that's right in, in keeping with modern UFO accounts of time dilation, which supposedly occur and so forth. But at the same time, that could be explained by someone going into another dimension and then coming back. But that doesn't change the fact that it's all localized. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but the problem with that, and what you have to be aware of is that when we talk about three-dimensional space, okay, and, and then when you talk about localization, you're talking about plotting a point in space based on Cartesian coordinates, X, Y, Z. The minute you introduce time to that equation, because you know, this changes the whole equation the minute you introduce time. If we go beyond time, if we go into an, an 11th dimension, an 11th dimension universe, forget right. about the notion of localization. It just doesn't mean anything more. And that's what I mean by saying that it's dangerous to, to frame the discussion in terms of our current understanding of physics. We are not the be-all, end-all of oh, beings sure. in the universe. And, and, Absolutely. You know, and I, don't, I don't disagree with that at right. all. But, but, the thing, but the thing that I do, do believe, and I think that, that again, evidence and, and even anecdotal evidence does bear this out, is that you know, in order for these, these beings to, to come here and do what they do, it is localized. They know where they're going. <laughs> they know what they want when they get there. They know where they're going to go when they get there. And then they're going to go back to wherever they came from. Well, that tells us that there's some sort of plotting involved, obviously, you know, some sort of, some sort of measurement, some sort of uh, a navigation. And the fact that they seem so concerned very often with things that have to do with our biosphere, our, um, our genetic diversity, and so forth, supposedly they do anyway. That's what people are, are, telling, are telling others. It begs the question, why are they so concerned if, if their own survival were not, if, if it were somehow integrally mixed up with ours or with, with this biosphere? Right. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Visit our forums at theparacast.com for lots of wild and woolly conversations. Got a comment, a question, concern, or a suggestion for a guest? Send your message to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. We're talking about subterranean myths and mysteries today, and our guest is Michael Mott. And Michael, you're working on a new book about Shaver, but you have another book out about subterranean mysteries. What's that called? Well, actually, what I also have out is a novel with another one coming out probably in about the next six weeks, and it's a satirical fantasy novel. There are subterranean things in it, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of Fortean and sort of paranormal things in it, but it's, it's sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, fantasy adventure novel, and, and the first one is called Pulsifer, a fable, and the second one is going to be called Land of Ice, a Velvet Knife, and they <laughs> both will be for sale. One is already for sale at various online booksellers like Barnes & Noble. Uh, Amazon.com and so forth. And then I've got a Shaver book coming out, which I guarantee you is going to be so unique. I mean, it, it, it basically centers around um, some of the physical evidence that, that Shaver claimed that he had and, and things that people have not really seen. And I think that once people see this material, that uh, 
there would be a lot of interest. Let's talk about that. Okay, now when I was talking to you off the air before we did this interview, you mentioned something here about having material from Shaver that had never yes. been published before. Mm. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I've got the material. I, I really don't want to talk about it right now because I'm I'm uh, I don't want to kind of spill the beans on it. But I will tell you this. I'll well, tell you this. It's, give us yeah, one bean, Mike. Tiny bean, tiny little bean. You know, well, tiny minuscule. Shaver made well. Shaver made certain certain claims about having um, access to. Uh, evidence of ancient technology, records, and things of that nature. And uh, for years, he tried to get people to listen to him. And uh, I came into possession of some materials that had belonged to him that he had sent to Ray Palmer. And these materials, when examined very closely, have revealed some pretty startling evidence. But that's all I can say at this point. Can you at least say whether these are the rock books that Schaefer worked on? It may be related to that, yes. But it, in a way that people have never really seen it before. Let so, me ask you briefly here to explain exactly what are the rock books. This is something that Shaver worked on for many years in the final part of his life. Well, Shaver was was not from Arkansas, but, but he, he moved there, and I guess he pretty much lived there most of his life. And, and his wife was, was working in the garden one day, and uh, she brought a bunch of strange round rocks in and complained about the rocks. And she said, well, look at these rocks. I was, you know, I got out of the garden. They look like they've got uh, pictures in them. thought you might want to see them. You know, and, and he looked at them, and basically he became obsessed. And basically what he came to believe was that these rocks contained images that were what we would now nowadays what we would call crystal holography, and he believed that they could have they, that they were that they were created by the same beings that he'd been writing about, and that these ancient civilizations that had been destroyed, and that if you had the right technology, you'd be able to actually read three dimensional images, probably moving images, just like a just like a, a DVD player or whatever. If you had the technology, it might even be an immersive type of environment, like a holodeck type thing. But he didn't have that technology. About he didn't talk about holograms and so forth. He tried to explain it, you know, in the terminology of the late 60s, early 70s, as best he could. And he came up with a, various ways of taking these rocks and slicing them with a, with a rock cutter into very thin slices, and he would shine light through them and make exposures on photographic paper. Then after that process, he had, there were still people who had a hard time seeing what he was trying to say. So he would project them onto various surfaces that were light sensitive, get, you know, the, the basic images that would show up in, on the emulsion, and then he would paint to enhance these things to show people what he was trying to say. Well, now, you know, of course, since, since he's passed on, uh, he's now considered a great outsider artist. And this has just happened in the last few years. Hmm. And all of his material is worth a lot of money and, you know, and so forth. And he's considered, you know, to be one of these weird crank, you know, folk artists and so forth. But that's not at all what he was going for. He wanted to show that, yes, he was an artist, but he also believed that he was, he was uncovering something that we had lost that belonged to our ancestors. And it was a type of technology and a, and a record of, of, a, of a pre-cataclysmic world that was destroyed. Well, a lot of these Im images are very interesting, and you know there is a, a part of the human brain that sees patterns no matter where you look. You know, sure. faces when you look at certain things. You look at clouds. You look at you know the soap or the, or the planet Mars, the, the yes. face on Mars. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll see. You know, and this because if that's encoded in us, that's a that's a something that lets us see a predator or something that lets us recognize you know loved ones whatever and bond with the mother whatever you want to say but the fact is that doesn't necessarily discount what he some of these images that he found and as i've come to find some of this stuff is 
it pretty much defies rational explanation unless it was created by technology. And uh, at this point, that's all I'm really going to say about it. But I, I guarantee you that uh, hmm. when it comes out, it's going to it's going to really blow some people's minds. Well, I have to tell you, just maybe you don't know, David doesn't know something I haven't mentioned before. Of course, I did visit Shaver at his home, and my first wife and I exchanged a lot of letters with Shaver. Okay, so right. we got a lot of material from him over the years. I don't know that I have any of it anymore. Maybe she does. But one thing we did do was look at the rocks and the so-called rock books. And Shaver's contention was that a pre-flood civilization, whatever, a civilization that existed thousands of years ago, used these rocks to store data. Okay? Right. And I mentioned holography at the time that I communicated with Shaver about this stuff. Now, the problem is what I saw might be something that would be like a Rorschach test. You know, you look at something and you see an image that you expect to see. I can't say with 100% certainty that the stuff I saw and the stuff that my first wife, Geneva, saw would count as a real book. I don't know. But now that our technology is far better, maybe he was right. I really don't know. Well, I, I think the one thing we have to look at is just like with a hard drive. You have enormous amounts of data basically layered on that hard drive. And if these rocks, and we know that now you know, we're just at the beginning of, of using crystals to store data in our, in our technology. And if these rocks contain data, and over time, this data has been corrupted. And by corrupted, I mean just by natural forces, erosion, metamorphic processes in, their, you know, in the crust of the earth, so forth. You know, it, there's going to be some serious degradation at times to that data. I mean, that's just, it's just like if you took your hard drive out and you took a hot iron and rubbed it on the hard drive. I mean, you know, there'd be some data left, but it would also be a big mess. And, of course, there would be layers of images and so forth and so on. And I think that's what you see in a lot of the things that he came up with. But I'm talking about images that are so photographically real and startling. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's almost disturbing. And so when the, when the book comes out, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. Well, I've never heard of these rock books. It sounds fascinating. It sounds yet like another aspect of what's presented in the time machine where uh, there's a depiction of history stored on these spinning rings. Exactly. Um, it's right. the same kind of thing. Now, he said their entire history had been recorded in these things. And okay. That was, that was one of the things he contended. You brought up the, the example of the hard drive, and we talk about the example of the spinning rings. Both of these things, even if left to the elements for as long as you want, they would still have the appearance, the actual medium itself. Let's separate the medium from the information. The medium itself would still have the appearance of being manufactured, purposefully manufactured. So without, and, I, and again, I don't claim to, to know about these rock books, but what I'd have to ask is that the the physical medium that these images came from these rocks guys if these are just rocks that look like rocks i think right. people are going to have a hard time with this if you if you come up with a rock that looks in some way like it's been machined that looks like right. it's been touched by some kind of external technology that would make the argument that this is a storage medium much more sound
This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. You're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you have a comment or a question, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com, and visit our wild and woolly message forums at thepowercast.com. Our guest, Michael Mott, a researcher into subterranean myths, mysteries, and whatnot. We're talking about Richard Shaver's rock books, and you had a comment, Michael, for David's remark on and question yeah. about the issue. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, it, that, that's easy to say, but when we're talking about huge amounts of time passing, like literally geologic epochs of time, right. you know, that, that argument really doesn't necessarily hold in terms of an external surface appearance of, of these rocks. For instance, if you were to take your hard drive out of your computer and, you know, roll it around in a, in a glacial sludge for 2,000 years and then throw it in the ocean and then dredge it up again, I mean, it probably wouldn't look, look much like a manufactured hard drive anymore. It would probably look more like a lump of rust. And, you know, that doesn't mean that the data would still be there because crystals that maintain the integrity of data better than anything else that we have. We're just now discovering this, whereas the hard drive is a magnetic medium. And so its, it's stuff will naturally de degradate over time. It, it will degrade. It will eventually go away, whereas stuff that, which is stored in, in as information in crystals does not do that. It remains intact. So the, the argument really doesn't necessarily hold up. And in terms of, of objects that have been found, literally hundreds of objects anomalous objects which have no rational explanation according to conventional science and history have been found in deep strata. They've been found in caves, they've been found in coal mines, things that are manufactured, things that could only have become put in place hundreds of thousands or even millions of years ago. And a good example are some stones that have been found in Africa which have been dated at hundreds of millions of years of age. And these stones will fit in the palm of your hand, they're perfectly round, they're perfectly smooth, they're spheres, and they have three parallel, evenly spaced grooves around the middle of, of the object. And dozens of these things have been found over the years. They find them, they, they find them in mines. They, they'll be mining for gold, diamonds, whatever, very deep, high pressure, and they find these manufactured machined objects. And there is no rational explanation for this unless there were civilizations here before we were. It, it's it's easy to, to, and you were talking earlier about judging things by our current our current knowledge and our current state of technology. Well, that's absolutely right. According to something that could create something like that millions of years ago, it could be that you know, in comparison, our computer hard drives are as primitive as you know two two rocks that you knock together to make a spark. I mean, basically, we're assuming that our computer technology and our latest technological revolution that we've had is the latest, greatest thing to ever occur on the earth, when in fact we may just now be climbing out of a morass that, uh, that we've been wallowing in for a very long time. 
Well, they are talking now about moving more and more storage to flash memory, which is still very expensive. That's like a memory chip that simply works after the power is removed. It stores an IM permanently until it's erased. Now, right. that's not a crystal, of course. Flash memory is not a crystal. It's probably stored in very much the same format as a hard drive. It's just a different way of doing the same right. it's, thing. It's a, it's a form of magnetic, magnetic storage. Right. But I believe that, that the crystal retention of data, all the time they're, they're talking about storing more and more and making it permanent. And by permanent, they mean indestructible. So it could be that if you have an object like that, you have a whole huge block which has billions and billions of gigabytes of data stored in it permanently. Well, you know, you leave that to the elements for, you know, half a million years, what's going to happen to it? I mean, the outside is going to become destroyed. It might get subducted. It might, you know, come into contact with the various pressures in the crust of the earth. And the data will be distorted. There will be some corruption. But if there really is data in there, then you'll be able to see evidence of that data. And I think that that's kind of the thing that, that he was trying to get across, but he didn't really have the terminology. And by he, I mean Shaver. He didn't have the terminology to describe what he was trying to say. Now, where did he find these rocks? Where did he come, where did he come into possession? How did he come into possession? He apparently found them in the, in the Ozarks, um, close to where he lived in the, in the general region, and he would apparently go on long rock hunts. And sometimes he wouldn't, he wouldn't find anything. He was so, living way out in the country, by the way, folks. Right. Way, way out in the country, off the beaten track, not near any major city. Right. And and he claimed that uh, that he that he would some days he would find them and some days he wouldn't, which you know kind of makes sense. I mean, if he were confabulating the whole thing, then you'd think that every time he walked out the back door he'd find one. But that wasn't what he said at all. He would just have to go on these long hunts. And sometimes you come back empty-handed. And what's the difference between that and someone going out hunting for fossils? Or someone who's a geologist who's looking for specific types of specimens, and sometimes he finds them and sometimes he doesn't. Well, was he finding these at the surface level? Was he going into caves? I mean, the difference being that, you know, a geologist is probably likely digging for these things and has got a team. Digging. I mean, we're talking about stuff that's been around for you know. So you're, so you're, so you're saying that because, basically what you're saying though, see, ge- geologists are a branch of established, respected science. Richard Shaver sure. was not, and right. so Richard Shaver was a was a poor guy, hardly had any income, and he, like Gene said, he lived out in the middle of nowhere. He was in the boondocks, and mm-hmm. and you know he had to, to make do with what he had, and and he did explore caves, and he did find these things on hillsides and so forth, and, and buried in the ground things of that nature. But, you know, the fact that, that he had resources which were scant at best, and he still found anomalous things which really more or less uh, defy rational explanation, or, or, or else they create a new rationale, depends on how you look at it. The fact that he was finding these things without, you know, university and government funding, I think this is a lot for the guy. Now, let's take that thread for a minute, Michael. Is there anybody currently, I mean, I know obviously you're writing about this topic and you're obviously very interested in this topic. Is there anybody who would be considered, for lack of a better term, the modern shaver? Is there anybody who's taken this thread, again, besides yourself and is running with it, that has some scientific chops? You know, I don't think so. I don't think there are people who, I know that there's a whole realm out there that, that, that deals with anomalous archaeology. Michael Cremo and, Cremo and other people like that, you know, come to mind. But at the same time, specifically about Richard Shaver's idea about these, these crystalline data forms, for lack of a better term, there, there is, isn't really anybody else that's looked into that, I, I don't believe. Now, there are people who are interested in it. There are people who are not hard scientists who are interested in it just because they're interested in Shaver. Richard Toronto, who, who has a website 
dedicated to uh, Mr. Shimmer called Shamtron, um, which is based on a magazine or a fanzine that he put out for years and years. He has a lot of interesting stuff at his site about Richard Shaver and about the rock books and so forth. But uh, in terms of hard scientific people who were funded by grants, no. There's nobody looking into this type of stuff at the, all. The reason I ask this is that in computer technology, we do know that light is sort of the evolution of where computers want to go. We're, we're starting to hit some of the boundaries of what electrical and electronic computing can do. And some of the most cutting-edge work that's happening in advanced computer technology research is in the realm of computers that are based on holographic memory, where right. actually the differentiation of memory, discrete memory, and processor is essentially not there, where you have one thing that is both the processor and the memory. Um, right. This is very advanced stuff. And then also, obviously... That, that's uh, basically what he said these things were. He said well, that you know, the, the rock itself, if it were in its pristine form, or if you had the technology, right. you could make it activate, and it would right. create an illusion around you of whatever it had inside. Okay. So, But if we take that idea, and then, of course, it, something we've talked about in the show quite a bit is... The whole thing that, that I'm still on the fence about, which is Philip Corso taking technology re retrieved at the Roswell crash and where our current computer technology, integrated circuits, lasers, a whole variety of stuff was derived from recovered alien technology. If, if we sort of map that thread into what we're talking about here, that would then presume that somebody who is doing advanced work on an on an optical computer, on a crystal-based circuit, would have deep interest in this and, in fact, would go to an extreme to find out more so. about this kind of stuff. Yeah, the, the thing is that there's such a stigma associated with topics of this nature that, you know, the hard fact is, and this goes for this topic, this goes for studying any aspect of anomalies that deal with other types of life forms that people do not want to believe in, so forth and so on. There's a stigma associated with that, and nobody is going to risk their funding, risk their tenure, risk their research dollars pursuing things like this. I mean, that's just a sad fact. If it's associated with ufology, if, like Shaver is, if it's associated with strange creatures and underground uh, mysteries, like Shaver is, then they're not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Mm. And then by the same token, when it comes to this type of topic in general, and in general I mean cryptozoology, anything anomalous like this, there's sort of a built-in fail-safe in the human psyche, I believe, and that, that's called ridicule. And when people, mm. it doesn't matter if they're scientists or not, when they're confronted with something they're perceived as threatening, whether it's threatening their tenure, threatening their sanity, whatever it is, they're going to ridicule it, they're going to downplay it, or they're going to ignore it. And in a way, that's sort of a collective protective mechanism, I believe, you know, for the, for the collective human mind, you know, that we've always done this, and these things become converted into folklore. And that's why, you know, in my belief, we currently are seeing an update of folklore, and that runs the gamut from UFOs to strange creatures to subterranean mysteries, whatever you want to call it, it's all folklore, even if scientists are involved, okay, because the scientists today are, are, the, are the wise men of, of previous centuries. That, I mean, they're just the modern equivalent, or so they think. And so what you, what you have is a, is a constant update of folklore, but if you look underneath, you see that the forms, the archetypes, the initial, in, the intrinsic message that's there is always the same. In other words, these mysteries 
have an origin here. And the fact that they become part of the folklore just indicates that the human, that the, the collective human mind finds a way to encapsulate it in a, in a form that it can accept and still, you know, go to work every day. You know, right. if you really believe someone were coming to your house in the middle of the night and stealing your jeans, and I don't mean your pants, then, you know, you would not necessarily want to get up and go to work the next morning. Hey, I wanted so, to tell, ask you something. Final question here. Sure. Ray Palmer said in his final years of his life that flying saucers were here to make us think. What do you think about that statement? I think that, this is my opinion, not Ray Palmer's, I think that that's true insofar as they're here for their own purposes, and then there's an element of disinformation involved. And I see the disinformation. I mean, if you look at the rabid fields of thought in UFOlogy and the, and the arguments and the bitterness and all the stuff that goes on, I mean, does that not sound to you like people have been indoctrinated? I mean, people have been brainwashed to believe one thing, one thing only, no matter what it might be. And so they're not open-minded enough to sit down together and say, well, maybe this and maybe this, or maybe it's all just a big deception. And, you know, to me... Present company excluded, of course. Sure. And to me, <laughs> if, if I look back... You know, and by look back, I mean look back through history, all the way back, okay, through almost every folk tradition and mythological cycle and religious belief, I find UFOs. I find deceptions. I find people saying, look over here, and something else is going on right here. Or saying, look up there, when really it's going on around you or under your feet. Hey, let me ask you one time here. That's what I think. Mike, perhaps you can tell us where we can get a hold of one of your books to learn more about the subjects. Okay. Well, um, Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures can be obtained at HiddenMysteries.com, and their toll-free number is one 888 5006 And, of course, they're at And uh, a few other people sell that book as well. The novels that I mentioned earlier can be obtained from Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Now, the second novel will be out in about six weeks. And then the Richard Shaver book that I talked about, which I really believe is going to just, you know, like I said, blow people's minds. I'm not sure when that's coming out. I'm about to sign the contract for that with a pretty major publisher on that one. So uh, as soon as that happens, I'll let you know. And we'll post great. the information on our forums. Thank you very much, Subterranean Mystery Researcher Michael Mott, for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Michael. All right. Take care. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietnam. Coming up next on the PowerCast, an amazing encounter involving life after death featuring our own David Biedney. Now, you know, of course, that David has had a number of unusual experiences in his life. He mentioned that UFO sighting in Venezuela back in the 1970s involving his brother Barry, also witnessed by hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. But that's not all. And there's a lot more in his life that we've yet to understand. And maybe we'll have a further understanding of all this coming up next. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, 
and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell you something here. I think I've mentioned it on the show before. Some years back, I guess it's close to 20 years ago, my mother-in-law died in my wife's arms. She what had she died of? Well, she had been suffering from pancreatic cancer, but oh, we didn't expect her to go that quickly. In fact, my late brother had enrolled her in an experimental program that might have prolonged her life. But what happens here is that she has a seizure, probably a heart attack, yeah. and they call emergency services, 911. So they picked her up, put her in the ambulance, and they were working on her. And then my wife and her sister went down to the basement of her sister's home, kind of waiting, worrying, wondering what's going to happen. They're tearful. Suddenly my wife feels this intense pressure in her stomach, the pit of her stomach. Yeah. And I can only tell you this, that that was the particular point in time when her mother actually died in the ambulance. Right. The same point of time, she felt this intense pressure, and then it, it vanished. Now, I understand this is not unusual that people sometimes feel that pressure when a loved one dies. Yes. So this is my encounter, very as close as I guess you can make it with life after death. But I understand you've had something a lot more compelling. So before we get into that particular situation, I guess it would be fitting if you tell us a bit about your family, Dave. Well, the short version is that my mother was a Holocaust survivor. Her family had been in Germany, in Berlin, when the, uh, when the Holocaust really broke out. And in fact, they were one of the last Jewish families to get out of Berlin. And, uh, and actually, they went to England for the remainder of the war, where they lived through the bombings. Now, it turns out that, among other things, my mother, and this is something a lot of the family weren't really aware of, but certain family members were, uh, including my cousin Eric, and he, he knew about this for years because he used to talk to her about this. My mother, Jean, had some very powerful psychic abilities that she didn't really understand. And I think in the final analysis, I could probably say that these these abilities ended up messing with her head. They, she just didn't know how to, how to deal with them. And uh, it made her life somewhat difficult, but growing up with my mother, I was witness to some of these abilities. My, my brother was as well. And we, uh, we just kind of learned not to question it. She just, there were things that she could do that were really quite astounding. Well, tell us a few of the things that you observe as a child. Well, the, the more important part of the story, what I want to talk about today, Gene, is it really should take up the majority of this hour because it deals with perhaps the most important question that humans have about life, which is death. What happens when we die? I can't think of anybody who hasn't thought about this. Certainly, it's the most defining question. I think that every person has besides what is life about, right after that is what is death about? What happens? You know, the, the fear of how we're going to die, how much pain we're going to go through if there is going to be pain, which so often there is. And then, of course, what happens afterwards? You know, people assume that 
you close your eyes, and that's it. I think a lot of people assume that. And uh, we don't know. We don't know what happens after we die. Right? That's got to be like the biggest mystery of all of life. And of course, like anyone else, I've wondered, I've wondered about this so much of my life. My father uh, got very sick with cancer, and after about a year and a half, he died. And uh, my mother and my father, who both had strong interest in all things paranormal, which is hence how I end up doing the show with you, because I grew up being fascinated with this as well, all of the topics related to paranormal activity. When my father was sick, I know that my mother and my father had a number of discussions about some way of my father showing my mother that there was indeed continuance after death. They had talked about this. They knew that Harry Houdini and his wife had talked about these things, and that after Houdini died, um, his wife was, was absolutely overrun with all sorts of mediums and spiritualists and all sorts of charlatans trying to help her reestablish communication with her husband, Harry Houdini. And to my knowledge, this never happened. Houdini was a real big debunker of this kind of thing. He was fascinated by this, but he also would debunk people who he claimed were fake spiritualists and fake mediums. So my mother didn't get this communication from my father. And, you know, she had some dreams about him, like often when people have a loved one who dies, they dream about them after death. But that's to be expected. That's certainly in no way any kind of proof of continuance. Um, even though people feel that it is, it's a very subjective, very individual thing that, if nothing else, it can be comforting, but it doesn't provide any kind of physical evidence of any sort of continuance. So my mother and my father talked about this a lot, and my father died, nothing happened. She never got any real sign from him. Uh, a number of years later, my mother was at her doctor's getting a checkup, and she had her first stroke in the doctor's office, which is the only thing that actually saved her. Had she had the stroke at home, her doctor ended up figuring out that she would have died. So she has this stroke in the doctor's office to get into the hospital. Uh, she, she survived it. She was largely paralyzed on one side. It affected her speech center, so she had some problems talking after that. But uh, make a long story short, she, she ended up living for a year and a half after that first stroke. And then that year and a half, I was, I was blessed in that I got to resolve a lot of my issues with my mother. In effect, her personality completely changed after that first stroke. It, my brother and I confronted her, her doctor about this. We, we couldn't understand why was mom a different person all of a sudden. Even the look in her eyes softened so much. And the doctor theorized that you know, there was a possibility that the stroke killed the part of her brain that retained all the anger and all the negativity. And so now all of a sudden my mother, for the last year and a half of her life, was eminently approachable, was rational, was clear. A lot of the things that in many ways she wasn't as clear, as rational before that first stroke. So in that last year and a half, I, I cleared a lot of my crap up with her. You know, can we ask here very briefly? Yeah, sure. Is your mother or was your mother's Holocaust experiences really a determinator of the way she behaved during the time that you yeah. knew her, before her stroke? Right. I, I would have to say yes, Jean. Um, my mother had scars on her body she would never talk about. I asked my grandmother, her mother, about these things, and there was some inferences to a, a couple of episodes where Nazi soldiers put out cigarettes on her arms and legs. Oh. She had these burn marks, um, and she would never talk about these things. There was another story about one of her uncles being shot dead right in front of her to the extent where his blood splattered on her. And she's like seven, eight years old, and this happened. I mean, you can't imagine. I mean, you and I probably, as stressful as we've had 
times in our lives, we can't imagine stuff like this. It's no, just, not at all. It's out of the realm of our possibilities. So I think it's fair to say that the Holocaust had a very deep effect on her psyche and, and made her mentally very ill for a long time, as, as it would uh, to anyone, I think, involved in that situation. So, yeah, I, I think it definitely had an effect on her. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, who was also our guest for this section of the show. And he's going to talk about an amazing life after death experience. And it's going to make you want to respect whether or not we continue after our present existence ends. Now, your mother then became, shall we say, more pleasant after the stroke, at least didn't seem to be as infused with these demons of her past, right? Yes, absolutely. As I said, Gene, the look in her eyes changed. It was the mother I always wanted, and I had her for a year and a half. So besides clearing up a lot of the junk that I had with her growing up, I broached the same subject that she had broached with my father, this notion of giving a sign, giving some sort of a communication a verification of continuance. And she and I talked about this. We talked about it on the phone. I went down and saw her a couple of times in that year and a half down in Florida. And uh, I said, Mom, you know, it would be great if, uh, if God forbid this happens again and you shouldn't survive, try to give me a sign. And my mother was very well aware of the fact that, like our listeners know, I am a, the kind of a person that I need. I need something substantial in terms of verifiable proof. I, I need to have something tangible. You know, anecdotal recollections are just that. They're not solid evidence. Dreams are useless. Dreams, I, I believe, are largely a concoction of the mind. So her appearing in a dream in front of me, you know, saying, oh, David, there is life after death, that certainly wasn't going to do it. I said, Mom, don't, don't appear in front of me as a ghostly apparition because I'll have a heart attack and then I'll be dead too. You don't want that. We don't want you to leave us prematurely. And yeah. frankly speaking, your parents left prematurely. They weren't very old in the scheme of things. I, I realized when we unveiled the stone in my mother's uh, grave, my mother and father buried together, they were both 66 years old, which is uh, relatively young as, as this goes. You know, I said to my mom, look, try to, try to use your awesome power to do something that leaves me no doubt. And she's like, well, do you have any specific ideas? I said, no, you're smart. You'll figure it out. And, and we left it at that. You know, I didn't press the point. We had a couple of conversations about it because we love talking about these topics. And then we, you know, moved on to other stuff. And that was that. A year and a half after the first stroke, my brother calls me on the phone to let me know that my mother has had a second stroke and unfortunately did not survive that one. She died in her apartment in the front bedroom. It was a two-bedroom condo in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, the front bedroom, there's some history to that room, but suffice it to say that this became kind of her little TV room. She had a TV set in there that, that I bought her, this little RCA TV, and she had a little couch in there. And she liked to just hang out in that room. It was kind of like her den. And she was apparently sitting on this couch. She had a second stroke, and she died. When she died... Uh, apparently, a little bit of blood came out of her mouth, and it kind of splattered onto the, the arm rail of the couch. So there was a stain of her blood on this couch, which is kind of messed up. And a friend of hers had come to visit her, I, I believe it was that same day or later that day, 
the front door was open like her front door often was. Friend comes in and finds her there dead on the couch. My brother calls me. I was living out in California. He said, David, uh, mom died. I'm like, oh, my God. And, and it, you know, just in the same way, the first stroke, we didn't know what was going to happen. It was unexpected. To be honest, Gene, I really thought that my mother would be around for a while, and I, and I wanted her to be around for a while, and that this was a new woman. This was really my mother now, and I was furious. I felt very angry. I felt chipped that she had been taken so soon after this first stroke, when, again, she was like, I could talk to her, and now she was gone. So I was completely distraught. Um, I knew I was going to have to go to Florida for at least a month because now that my mother and father were both dead, my brother and I had to clean out our apartment. We had to you know, sell her apartment and basically close out whatever there was of her estate. So I knew I was going to be gone for a while. So I grabbed a Samsonite suitcase and I just started throwing clothes in it without even thinking. You know, you're in that you're in that sort of automatic mode. You know, I'm just going to like do this thing. I have to go get a plane flight. And you know, that same day, got on a plane and flew to California. So I'm throwing clothes in the suitcase. I threw it. I ended up throwing some shorts I had laying around, some T-shirts, some other shirts, uh, and a pair of a couple of pairs of heavy jeans, not thinking I'm going to Florida. The likelihood I'm going to wear jeans is pretty much nil. You know, it's, it was, it's always warm down there. And, um, and I go to Florida, get on a plane, and, and I fly out. My brother picks me up at the airport. He says, where are you going to stay? Now, my grandmother lived in the same condo complex that my mo- as my mother did just down the road. And my brother lived fairly close by as well. So he wanted to know if I was going to stay with him or my grandmother. And I said to Barry, you know what? I'm going to stay at mom's apartment. He's like, really? You're going to stay there? I said, yeah. You know, I'll have a little bit of privacy in that there's no one else there. And uh, I kind of want to in that I'd like to sort of dwell in mom's spirit, as it were. You know, I, I just something in me said I just should go there. Well, we're going to sleep there. I'll sleep in her bedroom. <laughs> it's not Her bed's not being used. I'll sleep in there. My brother's like, you sure about this? I said, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we Did you there, feel anything in advance that something could possibly happen, or was this just a matter of convenience and a way maybe of remembering her? Uh, it was It was more convenience, really. And, and it was, uh, to be honest, it was about privacy. Um, to stay with my Oma, and that's sort of the Yiddish word for grandmother, and so I always think of my grandmother's Oma, because that was her name to me growing up. To stay with Oma was a delightful thing. I adored my Oma, but Oma was the kind of woman that if you got up at 7 o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom and then came back to bed, between when you got up to go to the bathroom and come back, she would have made the bed already. You know, she was just that kind of a person. And, David, what do you want for breakfast? You know, she'd be like cooking already. I just wanted some privacy. So really, honestly, Gene, I had no idea that something was going to happen. I, I sort of hoped it would, but it was really about wanting to have some privacy in the apartment there. And also really just because I, I did want to be where I felt, you know, sort of she was spiritually. This was you know, the place where she died. And I just, I don't know. I, I just, something in me said, I'll stay in the apartment. And sure enough, you know, my brother takes me to Oma's. Oma says, oh, David, you're going to stay with me. No, Oma, I'm going to stay in mom's apartment. Are you sure? And they were both kind of like a, a little a little surprised that I'd made that decision. But I said, yeah, I'll sleep in mom's bed. It'll be fine. So Barry took me over to the apartment. We drove over with my suitcase, you know, and I go in. And what happened was I went into this front bedroom, Gene. This is a small two-bedroom apartment where, like, half one half of a side of the apartment is the living room, dining room, and, like, kitchen up front. And then the other half of the, the side of the apartment are the two bedrooms separated by these two bathrooms. And this front bedroom, the room where she died, there was history. I had history. Um, and I, it, we don't need to go into it in this show, but 
I had spent time in that room. In fact, the one time I lived with my parents after I left my home when I was 16 was a 10-month stint when they moved back from Venezuela. And we ended up, the four of us living in that apartment for um, for about 10 months. I ended up sharing a bedroom with my brother, which was a nightmare at that point. It just didn't work out. That's always a nightmare, isn't it? I yeah. Oh, yeah. shared a bedroom with my brother. He was 11 and a half years older. Oh, man. So that wasn't very much fun, and I was really happy when he went off and got married. Yeah, oh, I bet. I bet. I have a lot of stories about that kind of stuff because, you know, boys need to have their own rooms. That's the bottom line. Right. But that condo, when it was built, my parents were the first people to buy an apartment in that building, in the condo, and I was the first person to live in that building, I got there two months before they moved up from Venezuela. I had moved down from New York, and I had a little mattress in that bedroom, and there wasn't even a, a, a curtain on the window because no one was even living in that building in the condo. So essentially, I was the first person to live in that building, in that condo, in that bedroom. Um, it would, there are some very wacky stories that tie into that, but essentially, I had kind of some history with that room. So we get to the apartment, and um, what I did was I took my suitcase, Samsonite suitcase, and I went into that front bedroom. You know, I saw the blood on this little cloth couch where my mother had died. I put my Samsonite suitcase in the f- on the floor in the middle of that room because nobody, apparently the deal was that my brother was hesitant to go in that room. Oma didn't want to go in that room. Nobody basically wanted to go in that room. I think that little splotch of blood on the, on the couch had something to do with it. So I went in, took my suitcase, put it down in the middle of the floor there. Actually, no, what I did is I took the suitcase to my mother's bedroom, emptied most of it out on top of one of her bureaus. Then I took the suitcase into the front bedroom and put it in the middle of the floor just because well, I don't know why I put it there. Just out of convenience. And these two pairs of jeans that I had tossed in the suitcase, which I wasn't going to wear, and I realized at that moment I just, I'll just leave them in the suitcase. The jeans were in that suitcase. That suitcase was laying kind of in the middle of the floor, off maybe a little bit towards one of the closets. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And... David is our featured guest for this part of the show, and we're going to talk about the compelling subject of life after death. Okay, David, so you've returned to your mother's home mm-hmm. after her death. You're going to yeah. spend the night there. You set your suitcase in the center of the living room. What happened next? Well, the center of the front bedroom. Oh, okay, sure. Okay. So, um, you know, in the Jewish faith, as you well know, because we're both Jews, there is a week of mourning. It's called Shiva. You sit Shiva. And the whole thing about Shiva, the idea is that you you have this communal morning, family and friends come to the home of the deceased, you sit around, you eat, you talk. The idea is kind of to dwell in the spirit of the deceased, to dwell in the space space where they lived, 
and to reflect on their life. And this is where you do your mourning. And um, you know, given that my grandmother was in the same condo complex, her friends were coming over. My brother's friends, my friends who lived down there, basically for five days, there were a stream of people coming in and out of the apartment endlessly. And the bedrooms, my mother's bedroom and this front bedroom, the doors were closed. Nobody would go into that front bedroom where mom had died. That was just the way it was. Nobody wanted to walk in there. So people were congregating in the living room and dining room area and, and in the kitchen. And people were coming and going. And this goes on every day for like five days. And uh, it's on one level, it's, it's uh, kind of cathartic. On another level, it gets to be kind of nuts because you essentially have no privacy. People are in and out all day long. It's kind of a good thing. But about three days into this gene, I was starting to get seriously stir-crazy, as was my brother. And um, on the third day of Shiva, you know, it was like afternoon, my brother says to me, Hey, David, you want to go out for a drive? Let's get out of here for a while. Uh, my mother had this car, this... Um, I think it was a Nissan Maxima, not a newer one, an older one. And after she had her stroke, uh, she couldn't drive anymore, so my brother basically took over the car for her. He would drive her around when she needed to do things. And now that Mom died, Barry basically took possession of the car. So he was driving this as his main car. So Barry says to me, third day of Shiva, David, let's go for a drive. Let's get out of here for a while. And, and I have to tell you, Gene, I was relieved. I said to Barry, absolutely, thank you for asking. We went to Oma, and we said, Oma, we're going to go out for a while. And Oma was like, sure, you know, go out. Uh, you know, don't don't stay out too long. You know, come back. But, yeah, sure, go out, whatever. You know, she was fine with that. The situation was under control. Uh, my two uncles were both there, my mother's brothers. So, you know, plenty of people were there. We didn't have to be there. So we get in the car, and we go for a drive. And um, we're driving around. We're just talking, you know. We're just we're not in the apartment. That's a good thing. And uh, my brother says to me, I think we're driving for about 15 minutes. He said, Hey, David, you know, I've been thinking about getting some new speakers for the car, and I would love for you to come over to Circuit City with me. I know you're a serious audio fanatic. He, he knew that uh, I loved car stereos, and there's some funny stories associated with that. But Barry said, I would really appreciate having you come and audition speakers with me because I trust your ears, and you'll help me choose good speakers for the car. I said to him, sure, Barry. You know, once Shiva's over, I'm happy to go with you. We'll go to Circuit City, and I knew some other places in, in Fort Lauderdale, in fact. I said, we'll go and we'll audition speakers. No problem. So Barry says to me, well, actually, I was thinking we're out now. Let's stop over at the Circuit City, not far from where we are. Come on in with me, and let's go listen to some speakers. So my brother says this to me, Gene, and I, I immediately thought, uh, I don't want to do that. It just the context of it being Shiva Week, I felt that it was bad timing, that it was just inappropriate. And I told this to my brother. I said, you know, Barry, I'm not really comfortable doing this now. Uh, I, it, I don't, it doesn't feel right. Let's wait till after Shiva's over, and I'm happy to spend a whole day with you doing this. My brother, he's uh, like me. We both take after our father and that we're both somewhat stubborn. So Barry says to me, well, you know, come on, we're out. We don't want to go back to the apartment yet. Let's, uh, you know, let's just go over and do this. It's no big deal. No, Barry, I'm not really comfortable with this. I don't really want to do this. Now he gets upset with me. He's pissed off. Come on, let's go over there. You know, we're out. Come on, let's do this. Brother versus brother. <laughs> you know how this works. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so I was I was not happy. He was not happy. He's driving to the Circuit City. We drive into the parking lot of the Circuit City. Come on, David. We're here. Let's go in. No, Barry. I'll stay in the car. Dude, it's hot in the car. Come on, man. 
what's the big deal? Just come in. So, you know, I get up out of the car with him. We go walking into the Circuit City. He's like, look, the speakers are over there. Just come over with me. And now, we had just walked into the place. The way Circuit City set up, or at least used to be, right at the entrance, you have the cashiers right there, and then you have these uh, displays with CDs right there next to the cashiers, and then you go in deeper into the store to get to the different departments. So, like the speakers and the the video stuff and the appliances, they're kind of all into the store, but right there at the entrance, there are these you know retail CD sales and the cashiers. So I say to my brother, look, I'm really not into doing this. At this point, I'm like not happy. I'm angry with him. Barry, I'm not going to do this now. Feel free to go listen to your damn speakers. I'm just going to hang out here near the CDs. And when you're done, you can come find me and we'll go back to the apartment. So he just like looks at me and he's not happy. He goes off in a huff. <laughs> where the uh, to where the car audio stuff is, and I'm like now they're alone in front of these you know CD display things, and so I'm just going to kill some time, you know. That's all there is to it. So I mindlessly walk over to these CD cases, Gene, and I just start to thumb through the damn CDs, not caring, not interested in buying anything. In fact, the last thing I want to do is buy anything because God forbid if I pick up something to buy it. You know, my brother is going to go batty on me. He's going to like scream at me because how much of a hypocrite will I be then, right? So it's like I'm not even thinking about any of this. I just go over and I start thumbing through these CDs, and this is where the weirdness begins, Gene. I'm thumbing through these CDs, and I come upon a CD of one of my favorite bands, the Butthole Surfers. I worship these guys, love these guys. What do I find in the Circuit City in Fort Lauderdale? I find. A copy of an incredibly rare, at the time, very rare CD of the Butthole Surfers, a live CD of theirs, The Whole Truth and Nothing But, is what it's called. It's a, from a small independent label. It's sitting there in the CD display case at a Circuit City. There's no price on it. It's shrink-wrapped, but there's, there's no price on it. And Gene, that CD has absolutely no business being there. None. Anybody who's ever gone to Circuit City, you go to the CD section, and what you're going to find is top 40 stuff. You know, the latest dance hits, the latest hip-hop stuff. What kind of band is this? (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid to ask. (laughs) The Butthole Surfers is uh, one of the most wonderfully subversive underground punk rock bands they're they're actually not they can't be categorized or classified into any box they are extremely eclectic their music is both absolutely disturbing and at times absolutely genius they are they're just an absolute car crash of a band that uh, they're an acquired taste and boy do I love those guys you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, who is our guest for this hour. And our topic is life after death. And when we left David, he was in Circuit City in Florida, finding an album from a band that's not normally, I guess, stocked by Circuit City. It's shrink-wrapped like any other album. Right. Tell us more. So there's no there's no price on it. I pick this thing up out of the bin, Gene, and I'm stunned. I know this doesn't belong there, and yet there it is. I had been searching for the CD for about a year and a half. With no success, I couldn't find a copy of it. 
And there it is. And I'm holding it in my hand, and I think to myself, this is extremely weird. What the hell is this doing here? Now, I don't know what to do with it, but I'm holding on to it because there's no way I'm going to let it go. I've been searching for this thing, and there it is. So I keep thumbing through the CDs thinking, well, gee, if this is here, I wonder what else is. So I'm thumbing through the CDs. I found another CD, and then another. These two other CDs, not from the butthole surface, from other bands, that really sort of didn't, well, not that they didn't belong there, but they were odd ones. Uh, anyway, it's not important what they are. The Butthole Surfer CD is really the one that it just didn't belong. The other two CDs had price tags on them. That One of them was a Japanese import. Another thing you don't typically find at a Circuit City, Japanese import CDs of obscure rock bands. Um, whatever. So I have these three CDs in my hand, and I'm thinking to myself, what do I do? Do I leave them here? <laughs> I don't know about that. Do I take them over to the counter and try to get them to hold them for me? Well, maybe I can do that. Um, do I buy them? Man, if I buy these things, I have to try to hide them from my brother. He can't see these because he can't know that I actually bought something here. So I'm looking around. I want to make sure my brother's not coming out yet right from where the audio speakers, uh, the auto speakers are. And I guess I say to myself under my breath, Hey, Mom, can I buy these? Because got, I've got guilt tied up in this. It's like, you know, I, I kind of want to buy them, but I don't want to do something to piss Mom off or to be disrespectful to her. So I kind of say, Mom, can I do this? And I don't hear, like, this loud thunderclap <laughs> from the sky. You know, there's no bolt of lightning in the store. So I figured, you know, I'm just going to buy these things, and I'll put up with whatever grief my brother's going to give me, you know. But maybe I can get these things, like put them under my arm or something. I don't know. So I take these three CDs and I go over to the cashier and I hand her these things. She rings up the two CDs with the price tags on them. Then she gets to the Butthole Surfer CD. She says to me, sir, these are not in our computer system. This, this CD is not in our computer. I don't have a price for this. Which she's like quizzically looking at this CD like, what is this? Why is this here? She's like, well, sir, I don't know how much this is. And I said, well, you know, whatever. I'll just, you know, how much do you want for it? I'll just pay it. Uh, me, I want to just get the transaction complete, Gene, so I can, you know, get the stuff hidden somewhere. So she says to me, well, I've got to call over a manager. <laughs> I expected this. Remember, the cashier cannot make a decision. No, sir. And, cannot. of course, UPC systems means you have to have this catalog number on the product that has to be in your system, your inventory system, so they are able to track sales and all that stuff. So suddenly you have thrown away their programming. You got it. So she goes to get a manager, and I'm like looking around, where's Barry? Where's my brother? Oh, man, I hope he's not coming out yet. So now she drags a manager over, and he takes the whole of the CD, looks at the title of the band, starts laughing. He's like, I've never seen this here. Uh, I don't know. what that. What's up with this? Why is this here? I don't know, sir. How much do you want for it? I'll give you cash. You want 20 bucks? What do you want? Let me just buy it. Well, uh, it's not our computer. Let me let me go into the computer system. I'm, I'm starting to get like nervous, right? Because I just want to get the transaction done. Finally, the guy agrees that he's going to charge me like 15 bucks for it. He hands it back to the girl. You know, okay, just ring this guy up. Let's say it's 15 dollars, whatever. You know, like 10 minutes has gone by with this nightmare, and um, now I'm like really like freaked out. Where's my brother? He's going to walk out any minute here. So she's ringing these things up, and uh, I'm like looking for my brother. She says to me, "Sir, I don't have a small bag. I just have a. I just have large bags. Fine, whatever. I'm like, I don't. I just want to be done with this." So she reaches under the counter, Gene, and pulls out 
a plastic bag of the size that you would put like a stereo receiver in, like a component bag, you know, this huge sack. And she puts these three little CDs in this sack. And Jean, she is handing me the sack as my brother comes walking up. I expected this. It's just like out of a sitcom. My brother walks up, and here I am at the cashier. She's handing me this this enormous plastic bag with CDs. And my brother's like, what the hell is this? And I am mortified. He is furious. He's very upset. You hypocrite. How dare you do this? You gave me all this hell on the way over here, and here you've gone and bought something? And I'm like, shut up and let's go back to the house. And, you know, the whole ride back, he's given me just absolute grief. And I'm just like, Barry, it wasn't my idea to go there. You want to go there? I found he's like, I don't want to hear it. You know, we are arguing all the way back to the apartment. And now, Gene, I got to go into the apartment, which is full of mourning people, with this sack. I have to get this thing into the apartment because I'm not leaving it in the car. Because I'm thinking maybe my brother's going to, like, throw this out if I leave it in the car. Or keep them for himself. I don't think my brother's going to want the butthole surfer CD. But I know that I have to get these into the into the house. Okay. I have to squirrel them away. I mean, and I've got to get in. I know there are people in the kitchen. There are people in the dining room and living room. I've got to, like, make a beeline for either the bedroom where I'm sleeping or, and I think to myself, the suitcase. The suitcase is in the front bedroom. I'll pop into the apartment. I'll, like, you know, squish this huge sack with, this, with these CDs in, in it. I'll, I'll squish it up. I'll get into that front bedroom quick. I'll throw them in the suitcase. And that's exactly what I did. We go into the apartment. I make a, a run for the front bedroom. I kind of, like, make like I'm running to the bathroom, which is right next door to the door to this front bedroom. I open the door to the bedroom. There's my suitcase in the middle of the floor. I open it up. I throw this big bag with the CDs into the suitcase. I shut it. I come back out. Indeed, go into the bathroom, wash my hands, think, oh, I got away with it. Sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, absolutely. I come out. My brother is glaring at me, almost like, to have a nice ride? Oh, my, don't ask me that right now. And so on and so forth. And I just went back out and and uh, the next uh, couple of days, we sat out the rest of Shiva, and finally, it's uh, Saturday morning, Shiva's over. I wake up on a Saturday morning. I'll never forget it was a Saturday. I wake up. There's no one in the apartment, thank goodness. And, you know, I go to the bathroom. I go make myself something to eat in the kitchen. It's quiet. I'm relishing the quiet. I'm relishing the solitude. And um, now I have to start going through my mother's stuff because... This is it. We have to clean out the apartment. We have to figure out what we're going to keep, what we're going to get rid of, what we're going to take to Goodwill. You know, all of this stuff. The stuff that nobody ever prepares you to put away the remnants of someone's life. There's no rule book for this, I don't think. I I don't think so. I don't think so. So I'm, I'm alone in the apartment. I'm not expecting anybody there that morning. My brother had made some comment about coming over that afternoon. Uh, to, to, to look through, start looking through stuff. But I knew that I had solitude that morning. And I just wanted to start looking through the apartment and seeing what the hell's there, you know. So um, there's a little stereo in the living room. And I thought to myself, you know what? It's time to listen to that Butthole Surfer CD. Cool, finally. I've got some quiet. I've got some peace. I can go listen to the Butthole Surfer CD. So I go into the front bedroom, and I open up the suitcase. And there are the two pair of, pairs of jeans. And no bag and no CDs. And I look down and I think, what the hell is this? 
She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in a grand science fiction tradition. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Now, before we proceed with this, because we've now created a mystery that has to be solved, and I expect we'll have some kind of startling revelation in a moment, but let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. David's joining us to talk about an incredible life-after-death experience. So, David, you're in the bedroom. You open the suitcase, right. the bag, this oversized bag from Circuit City containing these three CDs. It's not there. It's not there. All right. So, first thing that goes through my head, my brother, that rat, he came in here and he took them. That's the first thing I thought. I'm like, well, actually, the first thing I thought is, where are these things? Next thing I think is, Barry came in here and he took them. Oh, man. He, he saw me make a beeline for that front bedroom. I'm figuring he must know I put him in here. He came in at some point and he took him out. Now, I never saw him go in that front bedroom the other two days. I wasn't watching every minute, but nobody went in that front room. That door was closed. So now I'm thinking, all right, he took him out of here. They must be somewhere in the room. So I start to look through that room. Now, I, uh, I have to tell you, Gene, I went through... There are a couple of these uh, shelving units there against one wall that had some drawers below them. I look through that. There's no bag with CDs. I'm looking behind the couch that my mother was sitting on when she died. There's nothing. I look behind the TV. I look in the closet there. I'm looking all throughout this room. There's no bag. There are no CDs. I'm getting upset. I think to myself, okay, Barry took him out of this room. Maybe he put him in the living room. I go in the living room, I start opening drawers, I'm looking, I'm looking, there's no CDs. Maybe they're in the kitchen. I go over to the kitchen, I start looking through kitchen cabinets, I'm opening the freezer. I mean, silly stuff. I'm looking all over the kitchen, there's no CDs. What the heck is this? I go into the two bathrooms, I'm looking in the bathrooms, I go in my mother's bedroom, I'm looking through stuff. No bag, no CDs. Now I go back into the front bedroom, and I start tearing it apart again. I am ripping this room apart, Gene. I looked in every possible surface, under every surface, behind every surface, in that room. The Samsonite suitcase is sitting in the middle of the room with my two jeans in it, just sitting there closed. 
the CDs are not there. Now, let's qualify this. About two and a half hours have gone by. I have been searching for this bag with the CDs. I have literally ripped the place apart. There's no bag. There's no CDs. And you expect that maybe this is a practical joke perpetrated by your brother? I, I don't know. I think that's a possibility. I'm not sure now. But I'm getting really frustrated because literally two and a half hours have gone by, maybe almost three hours, and I am just flipped out. And when I get upset, my stomach starts to hurt. At this point, my stomach is churning, and I am just flipped out. So what do I do? I go back into my mother's bedroom, which is, it's again, it's a small apartment. Um, there's a door to her bedroom. There's a door to that front bedroom. There's like five feet of hallway between the two of them. Right inside of my mother's bedroom to the right, there's her bathroom. So what do I do? I go into her bathroom. All the doors are open because I'm alone in the apartment. I'm the only one there. I, I sit on the toilet in my mother's bathroom with all the doors open to the front bedroom, to her bedroom, to the bathroom. Everything's open. Drop my pants. I'm sitting on the toilet. My stomach is churning, and I'm like, where the hell are these things? What the hell's going on here? I'm upset, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm stewing. And at one point, I kind of look up. I'm like, where, where are these things? Mom, where the hell are these CDs? As I say that, Gene... Is that saying something out loud or a thought? No, I say it out loud. Okay. Mom, where the hell... And actually substitute hell with another word. Okay. Okay, a word we don't say on the Paracast. I say, Mom, where the bleep are these CDs? As I finish saying that, I hear two sounds come from the front bedroom. I hear the first sound is the... I guess the only way to describe a gene is the sound of air being displaced, like a th- like a suction sound. I hear this sound come from the front bedroom, and then within a second, I hear a second sound. The second sound that I hear, when I hear it, I leap up, pants around my ankles, Gene. I go stumbling into the front bedroom, and there... On top of the closed Samsonite suitcase sitting in the middle of the room is the bag with the CD sitting on top of it. The second sound I heard, Gene, was the bag hitting the top of the suitcase as if it were dropped right on top of it. There they were. The bag, this oversized, enormous bag, these three CDs, sitting on top of the Samsonite suitcase. There's no one else in the apartment, Gene. I'm there alone. Those CDs, that bag, were absolutely, positively, definitively not in that room, man. They weren't there. I tore the whole apartment apart. That stuff was not in the apartment, Gene. And I knew this because I had torn the place apart. Literally, when I said, sitting on the can, Mom, where the bleep are those CDs? In that moment, Gene... It's my belief. And, you know, look, the listeners are probably listening to this right now going, all right, Biedney has finally snapped like like a pretzel. He's like nuts. But this happened. I was there. And my mother, essentially, Jean, she did what exactly what I had asked her to do in a way that was so much more elaborate than anything I would have thought of. Because here, and let's just look at this for a minute. Here were these physical objects that... I had guilt associated with. I was, I felt terribly guilty buying these things. And I want to just mention it again that that butthole surfer CD gene, it had no business being in that store. It did not belong there. 
I bought these things. I felt terrible about it. I put them in that suitcase not three feet away from the place where she died. And I was positive, absolutely certain, my friend, that those CDs and that bag were not there. No doubt in my mind whatsoever. And there I am sitting on the toilet, and when I make the query to her, where are these, Mom? Jean, the only way she could have stunned me or, or given me f more, more firm proof about this would have been to have dropped them right in my lap. It was only, what, seven or eight feet away, maybe ten feet away from where I was sitting where she dropped them, really, back from where she had taken them. Except they weren't in the suitcase. They were on top of the suitcase. The suitcase was closed. So she didn't put them back in because then maybe I might have wondered, well, did I somehow miss them? Of course I didn't. I, I went through that suitcase. There were only two pairs of jeans in there. So, Jean, what I feel my mother did for me was exactly what I'd asked her to do. She gave me physical proof of continuance, and I want to qualify this. If we die and we just dissipate and there is no remnant of our personality, of our soul, there's no identity, well, that's one thing. But my mother, in order to pull this off, there had to be a continuation not only of her energy, but of her identity because here she was specific in removing something that she knew I had guilt associated with, something that was not there to begin with. You know, that those CDs and that bag, those weren't part of the apartment. I introduced those into the situation. I had guilt associated with them. She literally took those things out. So now, I mean, she reached in somehow, Jean, from beyond this life. She pulled this physical matter out, which is already to me an astounding thing. She made sure I noticed the stuff wasn't there. She made sure that I tore the place apart. She waited for me to do this. And in the moment that I said to her, Mom, where the hell are those things? In that moment, Jean, she put them back and she made sure that I heard it. <laughs> with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. A reminder, if you want to contact us here at the Paracast, send your message to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. Or visit our wild and woolly and getting woollier by the minute message boards over at theparacast.com. David Bietney is our guest and our co-host, and he's here for this segment to talk about a very unusual life-after-death experience, evidently. Now, let's kind of go through this very quickly here, mm -hmm. and that is, number one, the appearance of this strange CD at Circuit City. Did your mother know of your musical tastes? She did know of my musical taste. Did she know that I had been searching for the, this Butthole Surfer CD? No. Okay. She, she knew that I had eclectic music taste. She knew I loved rock music. But no, she did not know that this CD was one that I had been searching for, even that I listened to the Butthole Surfers. No. Okay. So do you think, in retrospect, that this was just a coincidence or that some outside force put the CD there for you to find and buy? I honestly don't know. You know, I've thought about that a lot, Gene. And I have to tell you, when this happened, you know, and I'm, I'm holding the bag of these items 
I thought to myself, well, I mean, my first reaction was extreme emotion because in that moment I knew what my mother had done. I realized it. And so, uh, and again, it's going to sound a little odd, but I'm holding this bag with these three CDs and I'm thinking, these objects just came through an interdimensional hole. This is what I thought. I'm like, oh my God, I'm holding something that was just essentially not here and now it's here so already now these things just it was there was just, it was just a paranormal moment as far as the the cd that's butthole surfer cd and how it ended up in that store gene i really honestly don't know but i do know that that cd was not in their computer system they themselves at circuit city said to me sir this is uh, we don't have this we don't stock this item and it was a rare CD. This was not something you could go buy anywhere. Oh. You could go, you know, you could go into collectors. At the time, this was a, this was a completely difficult CD to get. I had been searching for it for a year and a half. I mean, I had an outstanding uh, uh, request at um, at a couple of music stores in the Bay Area, including Amoeba Records and Rasputin in the East Bay. They knew that if they get a copy of the CD, they call David Biedny up because I'm going to buy it. So this is not something you would even normally find on the shelf of a store that sells rare CDs. Okay, when you were talking with your mother about her providing some evidence to you, uh, some compelling evidence of survival, did you discuss the form and nature of what she would do? No. Okay. No, because I, I didn't know. I just what I said to her was, Mom. Don't you know? Don't show up in in a, in a dream because I won't believe that. Because I won't. I, I'll doubt that. I'll question that. And I, the other thing was, don't show up in some kind of ghostly form because that will completely flip me out. Okay, these CDs. Yeah. Do you play them normally? Do you have them as regular parts of your collection? Do you put the bag in some kind of special place because you're afraid to touch it? What is your reaction since then? Well, you know, since then it's it's funny you should ask that. I still have these. Uh, these three CDs. They're in my collection. I, I can't tell you what happened to the bag. I don't know what happened to the bag. I, I know I kept it for a while, and then at some point during some move, the bag's basically it got thrown away, uh -huh. got lost. Because honestly, at that point, I really kind of came to understand that the objects themselves were not important. It was the, the message, it was the process, the act. That's what meant something. Now, you know, of course, because of the nature of the show and the fact that you and I have demanded proof from other people who have been guests right. on the show. This is a personal experience. This is yeah. not something that is easy to provide proof about. It's so, possible to provide of course, proof about, actually. Yeah, you absolutely. have to basically experience it to know it. If you haven't experienced it, there's no way to transfer the information except as an anecdotal account, and that's it. Yes, yes okay. that is correct. When I asked my mother, this was, a, this was a very personal request. When I asked my mother for proof of continuance, or to try to give me proof, I didn't do this with the expectation that I would then take this to the world and say, look, here's what happened. This was for my own edification. When it happened, though, Gene, I, I really realized at that point that at some future point in my life, I would want to talk about this. And I'll tell you something. When a couple of years ago, um, my cousin's wife, my cousin Eric's wife, Linda, who had battled a, a very terrible bout with cancer for five years, and then she died at a very young age. She was 39 years old when she died. And in fact, I was holding her when she took her last breath, and I had helped her with a, a bunch of the process of her transition. That's a topic for another show. But when I had spent time with her, talking with her about death, 
because this was a topic we talked about, she and I, quite a bit. I told her this story, and I told her this story in the hope that she would find some comfort in it because, again, this is, this is the key question that we all have in our lives. What will happen after we die? And uh, Linda was a young, vibrant soul who loved and embraced life, and she was incredibly sad and, and frightened about what was coming. You know, here she was, she was in her 30s, and she was going to not live to see 40. And and there was all this pain that she was, was in, which was really just terrible, Gina. It was just a very sad, very horrible story. And I talked to her about this experience, and I, and I, and I did it so that she would know that she wasn't going to vanish when she died. That, that, you know, and I said to her, everybody who you've ever loved, you're going to see again. This is not like you're going to go and you'll never see your parents and you'll never see Eric again. I said, I, I really believe. In fact, I said to her, I know that you're going to see them again. And Jean, something I say on this show over and over again is that I don't want to believe a damn thing. I want to know because beliefs are just that. You can believe in anything. What my mother did, as far as I'm concerned, and, and you're right, I don't have proof of this. I have nothing to pull out and say, you know, look, I can pull out that surfer CD. You can look at it and go, well, it looks like a CD. Fine. I have nothing. I have no tangible thing for anyone else except for the experience. But I know that our listeners know that I'm the kind of person who I take nothing at face value. I want to, to get underneath of the facade to see what's really there. And this experience happened in a way where it was designed so that I would come out of it with no doubt whatsoever, Gene. And I, and I, convey, I convey this to you and to our listeners. There is absolutely no doubt whatsoever in my mind that my mother took these out and put them back. She did, man. I was there. It happened. I heard it happen. There was no one else in the apartment. So the bottom line, Gene, is that people can take whatever they want from this story, but hopefully what they will take from it is what I've been saying all along, that there is continuance and that if you never believe another word that I say on this show ever about any of my experiences, or if you choose not to believe anything I've said up until now, believe this one thing because it happened it happened in a way that left me with no doubt and i, I and again do, gene do i know what comes after death do i have any details about that did this experience convey anything in particular about what the nature of life after death is not really all that that i know is that we continue after this and that there is some semblance of our identity that remains intact. That's what I know, Gene. I don't know anything beyond that. I have my suspicions. I have my intuitions. I have my beliefs. But that's what I know, man. This is The Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, a reminder, if you have a comment or a question to us at the Paracast, send it to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. And don't forget to visit our wild and woolly and getting woollier all the time message boards at thepowercast.com. 
where we invite your participation. Coming up next week on the Paracast, we'll be talking about the ever-controversial subject of UFO crashes and retrievals with Ryan Wood. He's author of Magic Eyes Only, subtitled Earth's Encounters with Extraterrestrial Technology, and also about the forthcoming fourth UFO crash retrieval conference, which will be held in November in Las Vegas. Coming up next week with more surprises on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.